Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the title of my sermon this morning is How to Speak in Tongues 101. (laughs) Now that's what a lot of people think that uh, this chapter is in your Bible for. It's nothing more than a a lesson on how to speak in tongues. Uh, I assure you that Paul actually had, I think, something a little different in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians 14. And so I actually want to preach a sermon entitled, Love, Edification, and Spiritual Gifts. Love, Edification, and Spiritual Gifts. Let me read the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 14 to you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of God. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself But he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge? or by prophesying, or by doctrine. And even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian. He that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church." True Christianity is a community affair. True Christianity is not a religion of individualism. It is a religion of relationships and associations. And this communal aspect of our faith is most prominently expressed in the church. The church is likened in the Bible to a family with many members. It is also likened to a kingdom with many citizens. The Bible is replete with one another's that instruct us in how we are to relate to one another in this community of faith. Love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, be kind to one another. If you are a lone wolf in the faith, you are disobedient to many of the commands of Christ. And God has given us, each of us, very special and unique avenues to enhance 
magnify and fulfill the relationships we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. What are these unique gifts that God has given? Well, I'm of course referring to spiritual gifts. Now we have belabored the the purpose of spiritual gifts in previous messages in 1 Corinthians. You all know why God gave spiritual gifts. Both in Paul's day and in ours though, this is a truth that really can't be overstated. Spiritual gifts are given by God for the edification of others. They are not given as a means to build your own reputation um, or win the applause of those that you go to church with. It's not why God gave spiritual gifts. This is the central truth that Paul has now been spending the better part of three chapters to convey to the Corinthians, chapter um, 12, 13, and now 14. Often we read and interpret Scripture and we do so with a bad habit of missing the forest for the trees. We go to 1 Corinthians 13, for example, and we ooh and ah over Paul's sweet description of love and we print it out and we hang it up on the wall or we you know, put it on our refrigerator with a magnet and we forget that the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is primarily chapters 12 and 14. Now, I'm not saying, by way of introduction, that it's wrong to zoom in on a relatively small portion of Scripture and milk those verses to the best of our homiletical abilities. Obviously, I'm not saying that's wrong because that's what we've been doing throughout this series in 1 Corinthians. I went back and I looked over the, the series uh, of sermons in this, in this exposition. Most of them don't exceed five verses. Most of the sermons in this 1 Corinthians series, have been on verses, on passages, fewer than five verses. So it's, it's not wrong for us to examine and preach small sections of a book or a chapter. But when we do so, we must always do it with the bigger overarching context in mind. What is this, how does the saying go? I probably shouldn't try to quote it from memory because I'll forget it. How does it go? Uh, a, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text you ever heard that one basically saying if you try to take a, a passage of scripture or take a few verses and preach them without uh, without their context you can uh, twist them to basically support anything you want them to teach so you need to make sure that when we look at a portion of scripture you do it with the overarching context in mind and brothers and sisters this is especially true as we come to these nitty-gritty heavily practical portions of Paul's epistles. And that is so because it is in these portions that he's dealing with very specific issues in the Corinthian church. And we must be aware of that because the specific Corinthian problem is not our problem. Right? I mean, what is Paul dealing with in this section? Especially in chapter 14, he's dealing with the abuse of the gift of tongues being exercised in the church. And that's not our problem. We've had our fair share of problems at this church, but thank God, uh, someone abusing spiritual gifts week after week or abusing the gift of tongues week after week has not been one of them. <laughs> so does that mean, though, that this portion of Scripture has nothing to say to us? Does that mean that chapter 14 is just irrelevant to our church in 2023? 
Well, what you need to understand, and this is where context comes in, the specific problem in the Corinthian church may not be our problem. But the sinful attitude and the unbiblical thinking that caused the Corinthian problem is the same attitude and the same thinking that caused a multiplicity of problems in every church and in every age. So what was the fundamental sin in the Corinthian church that led not only to their problem with the gift of tongues, but to many other problems in the church? If you've been around here for many of these sermons in 1 Corinthians, you probably know the answer to that question. What was their besetting sin? What was the malady in Corinth? Is it not the sin of pride? Was it not pride that caused them, remember, a few years ago, I can't believe it's been a few years, but a few years ago, chapters 1 and 2, when we talked about the Corinthians and their unbiblical view of wisdom, their unbiblical view of worldly philosophy, was it not pride that led to those problems? Was it not pride that led to their divisiveness in their party spirit? I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Apollos. I am of... The worst one was what? I am of Christ. They basically said, we're so great, we're so spiritual, we don't even need earthly teachers. It was pride, right, that rooted that sin. Was it not pride that gave them a wrong concept of the gospel ministry and of gospel ministers? Remember when Paul had to explain to them the role of a gospel minister and the blessing of a gospel minister in their lives and in the ministry of a church? Was it not the sin of pride that led to their abuse of Christian liberty as it pertained to the whole conundrum of eating meats sacrificed to idols? Was it not pride that polluted their practice and observance of the Lord's Supper as they would come to church and their selfish pride, they would just they would partake before others, they wouldn't give regard to others in the church, they gave no thought to preferring their brother before themselves, they just did whatever they wanted to do. And now, it is the same sin of pride that's clouding their use of spiritual gifts and causing them to employ them for the wrong reasons. Pride is a poisonous sin that ruins everything that it touches. And so you can't preach through 1 Corinthians and not confront over and over again the sin of pride in the church. Well... In this chapter, in chapter 14, in this section, chapters 12, 13, and 14, how does Paul confront the sin of pride? He confronts the sin of pride by exhorting the Corinthians to real, genuine Christian love. He does that in chapter 13. And he tells them in chapter 13 that love and pride cannot coexist. Because love tells me to put you in front of me, but pride tells me to put me in front of you. Love tells me to use my spiritual gifts to serve you and to minister to you, but pride tells me to use my spiritual gifts to impress you and to make a name for myself and to cause you to think that I'm all that. And then some. Love tells me to realize that the church is the body of Christ. And therefore, I must seek the good of my fellow members. But pride tells me that the church is all about me and my preferences and what I want. And I don't care what you think. 
because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That's pride. So as we look to this text, remember where chapter 14 lives in this book. Remember what Paul has already talked about, both in the immediate context in chapters 12 and 13, and remember just the whole tenor of the book of 1 Corinthians and what Paul has been trying to get across to these, these Corinthians about how pride is just ruining so many things in their church. Chapter 14 is not, in fact, how to speak in tongues 101. Chapter 14 is the practical outworking of love guiding the use of spiritual gifts. So if love guides the way you use your spiritual gifts, Paul will tell you in chapter 14 what that looks like. So there's a number of things I want you to see in this text. The first is this. I want you to see the assessment, verses 1 through 5, the assessment. Paul kind of gives an overview or an assessment of what's going on in the Corinthian church, and he gives some practical, exhortative principles for them to abide by. Notice he begins with this statement in verse 1. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. The, The phrase here, follow after, could also be rendered to pursue. Uh, It's a word of intensity. He's not just saying uh, follow after it, but follow hard after it. Make it a priority in your Christian life. Um, To show you what Paul is saying here with the right emphasis, let me read you chapter 13, verse 13, and chapter 14, verse 1 together. Remember, when Paul wrote this, there were no chapter and verse divisions. So if you're reading 1 Corinthians, you come to the end of chapter 13, and in verse 13, you, you, you see this. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. You see that connection? Paul says, charity is the greatest of these Christian virtues, so follow after it. The greatest of these is charity. Therefore, make sure that you are actively chasing after love as the defining characteristic of your Christian life. Follow after love is the imperative of the preceding chapter. In chapter 13, Paul told us exactly what Christian love looks like. And so when he says follow after love, pursue love, he's saying look at 1 Corinthians 13 and and chase that reality in your life. That's not the only imperative command in this verse, chapter 14 and verse 1. He gives us another command, doesn't he? Desire spiritual gifts. And what you must see here is that these two commands go hand in hand. If you're going to do the one, you must do the other. Why? Because spiritual gifts are the means through which our love for one another is displayed in the church. If you're following after love, you will also be desiring spiritual gifts because spiritual gifts are the means by which you love one another. If you're following after love, naturally, you're going to be looking for ways to love. And if you're desiring spiritual gifts for the right reasons, naturally, you're going to be manifesting your use of the spiritual gifts in love one to another. What does love look like on a practical level? 
to love one another is not just to have a, a mushy-gushy feeling inside when we think about each other. That's not, I mean, that, that is love, but that's not all love is. To love is to bless one another with our speech and to serve one another with our actions. In other words, it is to employ your spiritual gifts for the good of others. So if you have a right view of love and a right view of spiritual gifts, you will desire spiritual gifts because the more gifted you are, the more ability you have to love others. And the same principle kind of applies with good works in the Christian life. We, we work for Christ to earn rewards. Why? So that when we get to heaven, we have crowns to cast at His feet. I don't want to go scraggling into heaven barely making it, barely crossing the finish line. Now I want to go into heaven with good works to show for the grace that was given to me in this life. And so too it is in the church. I don't want to be that church member that just gets there a minute before service, leaves a minute after, doesn't talk to anybody, sits there, uh, barely paying attention, never seeks to say a word of encouragement, never seeks to be a blessing to anyone, really doesn't contribute in any meaningful way to the body. Don't be that person. But, but look for ways to, to love. Look for ways to be a blessing. And don't believe the lie that you have no gifts. You do have gifts. Don't believe the lie that, well, there's nothing for me to do. Oh, well, there's... There's nothing for me to contribute. That's not true. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't have added you to this body. So Paul says, follow after love and desire spiritual gifts. But then he says this, but rather that ye may prophesy. This could also be translated, but especially that you may prophesy. And we see this contextually that he's saying this in, in uh, contradistinction to the gift of tongues. Desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Not necessarily uh, that each one of you should be praying and seeking the gift of prophecy personally in your life, but that you, your love should cause you to value prophecy. And, I, and I'm going to, to show you how, even if you're not the one that's prophesying or preaching, you can still use your giftings in a way that enhance the gift of prophecy in the church. The Corinthians, of course, you know they were obsessed with the gifts of tongues. And they were obsessed with all things that were showy and all things that were ostentatious. And so the first thing that Paul will teach them in this chapter is that love actually prioritizes the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues. And he's going to explain that in the verses that follow. So why might prophecy be more important than the gift of tongues? Well, notice what Paul goes on to say. He says in verse 2, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Let me break this verse down and define some terms here. When Paul talks about an unknown tongue... We've covered this before. When Paul talks about an unknown tongue, he's not saying that the person is speaking in gibberish. Right. An unknown tongue is an intelligible language 
that is simply unknown to the rest of the church. And when Paul says that he speaks to men, not to men, but to God, he doesn't mean that tongues is some secret prayer language that's just between you and God. No, what he means very simply, this, this verse, this really this whole chapter, by the way, is very straightforward and very plain. What Paul is saying here is, the guy speaking in an unknown tongue doesn't speak to men, he speaks to God because God's the only one that understands him. You do know that God knows all the languages, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't just know English, okay? I know a lot of people think that he only knows English, but actually if you pray to him in Spanish, he'll hear you and understand you. If you pray to him in German, he, he hears you and understands you. And, and God understands this one that speaks in tongues, but nobody else does, Right? The failure of the church to understand him is not because of the message, but because of the medium. In fact, we know that the message is sound. We know that the message has good content because Paul says, Howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. So it's like Paul saying, This guy speaking in tongues, man, he's, he's really preaching a great sermon. But nobody understands him because we don't know the language he's speaking. The problem is not the content of the message. The problem is the mode of delivery. Last week, we had the privilege of hearing a very phenomenal sermon from our brother Bertito Kraft. But do you know why that sermon was so phenomenal? Well, one of the reasons why that sermon was so phenomenal was because he preached it in English. He didn't have to preach it in English. He preaches in Spanish. He can preach in Spanish. He could have come here and preached that same sermon in Spanish. And you know what? We wouldn't have thought it was all that phenomenal. Because with the exception of maybe one person, nobody would have had any idea what he was saying. I don't want to get ahead of myself here in this text, but Paul is introducing a very important principle relating to a loving use of our spiritual gifts in the church. Perhaps you're starting to see it. It's going to become clearer Just keep going, keep tracking here. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification. So he's now comparing and contrasting tongues and prophecy. You speak in an unknown tongue without interpretation. You don't speak to men, you speak to God. Ah, but if he that prophesieth speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Notice what the difference between prophecy and tongues is not. It's not that one contains a true message and the other contains a false message. That's not the difference. No, the difference is quite simple. One of them communicates a message that is intelligible to the church and the other communicates a message in a language that no one understands. That's the difference. So Paul says... When you speak in tongues without interpretation, you're speaking to God because the rest of the church has no clue what you're saying. Ah, but when you prophesy in a known language, you're speaking to men because they can actually understand you. That's not that complicated, right? And notice the objective of prophecy according to verse 3. What, what is prophecy? Well, you might say, well, prophecy is the ability to predict the future. Certainly, that's a valid definition of prophecy, but that's not the one Paul gives in verse 3. It's rather interesting. This is one of those things in the text that really kind of gripped my attention. 
He says that he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. That's the goal of prophecy in the church. Hmm. The goal of prophecy is to edify, to exhort, and to comfort. That's always been the goal of prophecy. Even when those prophecies included revealing details about the last things, the goal of those prophecies is always to exhort, edify, and comfort. It's never just to give us a nugget of truth about the future. Again, I I could go off on this rabbit trail, and I'm not going to go off on this rabbit trail, but both in our Lord's Day and in our days, there's just this absolutely unhealthy obsession with prophecy just simply as a means to have some special insight about the future. It's not why God gives prophecy. He gives prophecy so it will exhort us and comfort us and edify us. Do you believe the prophecy that Jesus is coming again? I hope you all believe that. But I hope you don't believe it and run around like some conspiracy theorist with a tinfoil hat thinking you have some secret insight that the rest of the world doesn't have. I hope what that prophecy actually does in your life is change the way you live so that you're expecting His coming and you're telling others about His coming. That's the goal of prophecy. And that is precisely why Paul tells the church at Corinth to follow after love and to desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Why does he prioritize this gift over the gift of tongues? Because prophecy has the ability to edify when tongues does not. Tongues only edifies when it is accompanied by the gift of interpretation. And even when it is, it is much more difficult to communicate a message through translation than it is to declare the truth in the common language of the people. So in verse 4, Paul provides us with a very fundamental principle about the loving use of our spiritual gifts. And so let me take this principle and, and apply it a little bit more broadly beyond just the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Notice the principle in verse 4. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. You are only making a proper use of your spiritual gifts when you use them for the edification of others in the church. And there can be no edification apart from understanding. In order for me to bless you with my spiritual gift, I have to use it in a way that you can understand. My spiritual gift has to promote clarity. My spiritual gift has to promote order and intelligibility. There is no place in the church for doing your own thing. There's no room in the church for individualism and self-expression with no thought for the good of the congregation. To speak in tongues without interpretation is selfishness, Paul says, because the only person being edified is the one speaking in the tongue. You don't come to church to edify yourself. Now, there's nothing wrong with private edification. I hope all of you read your Bible this morning in private for your own edification. I hope you do that every morning. But that's not why you come to church. The church is not a place for private worship. 
The church is a place for public worship. Personal edification simply has no place in the assembled body of Christ. And if you grasp this, it's, it's going to revolutionize the way you think about coming to church. See, when you, when you get up in the morning and you read your Bible, your goal is to edify yourself. But when you come to church, your goal is, or at least it should be, to edify others. And that's not only true for the preacher. Though it certainly does apply to preaching. And we know it applies to preaching because notice what Paul uses to describe the gift of prophecy in verse 3 again. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. And again, regardless of what you believe about the spiritual gift of prophecy, whether you believe it exists in some form today, whether you believe it doesn't, whether you believe that's a debated point, can we call preaching in the New Testament age, can we say in some sense that preaching is a form of prophecy or that preaching is prophetic? Whether you... you believe that or whether you don't believe that, don't we all agree that preaching in the New Testament should be edifying, exhortative, and comforting? Amen. Shouldn't that be the goal of preaching? Shouldn't that be the, what you want to hear when you, when you come to church? Shouldn't that be the goal of the preacher? Not, how can I impress? How can I make a name for myself? How can I show off? But how can I edify, exhort, and comfort? Mm. Robust preaching is that which exhorts in duty and comforts in promise. A good sermon is not an exhibition of the preacher in which he shows off his skills and all the big words that he learned in seminary. And yes, I know that I occasionally use some of those words. And when I do, I look out at your faces and realize that I better rephrase what I just said. Why? Because if you don't understand me, then I can't edify you. But if, see, if my motive for preaching is selfish pride and not a genuine love for others, then my preaching will never be edifying, exhortative, and comforting. There are too many preachers who have a desire for their congregation to go away thinking, what a great preacher, instead of going away thinking, what a great God. Mm. So do you see how Paul is building his argument in this text about the use of spiritual gifts? Proposition one, spiritual gifts must be motivated by love. Proposition two, love manifests in our edification and service to others. Proposition three, edification only occurs when there is clear understanding Therefore, conclusion, love prioritizes prophecy over tongues because prophecy is understandable and therefore it has the ability to edify. Mm. It's really, you read the writings of Paul, and I think especially in 1 Corinthians, he is a master of logic and rhetoric. Notice how he concludes this assessment in verse 5. He says, hmm. I would that ye all spake with tongues. And of course, this is where our charismatic friends run to and they say, aha, there it is. See, Paul says he wishes we all were just speaking in tongues. <laughs> well, hold on a minute, because in chapter 7, he says he wishes we were all single. Mm -hmm. <laughs> context, context, context. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul is making a rhetorical statement. When you read this, I would that you all spake in tongues. Read it kind of like this. 
It's as if Paul is saying, listen, I have nothing against the gift of tongues. Speaking in tongues is a great gift. And hey, if God gives you that gift, praise the Lord. But rather that you prophesy. That's what verse 5 says. As neat of a gift as tongues is, it would be really better for the church if you had more prophecy. Why? Because greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues except he interpret. That the church may receive edifying. That's the ultimate goal of spiritual gifts. See, our temptation in the New Testament age is the same temptation that Corinth faced is we, we grade spiritual gifts with the wrong rubric. We assign value to spiritual gifts based on how impressive they are. We, we judge preachers that way oftentimes, sadly. Their content is maybe second or third on the list of how we evaluate them. Uh, but first is their style, their appearance, their presentation. If someone stood up in church this morning and uttered a word from God in a foreign language, it would be hard for us not to look at that and say, wow, that's impressive. I've never done that. Never seen that before. But if we don't understand a word they said, the practice of their gift was worthless to us. Mm -hmm. That's what Paul is saying. And to bring that illustration closer to home, if we become enamored with a preacher because of his charisma in the pulpit, because of the style of his delivery, but if that preacher has no content in his message, then we're not going to profit from him. In verses 6 through 8, Paul will go on to give an analogy. We've seen the assessment. We're about to see the analogy of this teaching. But before we get there to verses 6 and 8, let me just point out to you a very important application of this text for us today. This text should recover an emphasis on the primacy, importance, and centrality of preaching in the ministry of the local church. In our day... We don't have the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy in the way that they had it in the church in Corinth. I believe that because God has ceased giving new revelation. All of his revelation is contained in his word. So we don't have tongue speakers in the prophetic sense. But what we do have are preachers and teachers who are called of God to open their Bibles and to declare, thus saith the Lord. And God calls these men to love the church, and he gives these men spiritual gifts to preach to his people for their edification, exhortation, and comfort. Because preaching is a gift and a calling. True preaching carries with it divine authority. And that's, I would hypothesize, exactly the reason why true preaching is often despised in the church and substituted for other things. The church in our day is crumbling against this anti-authority, anti-preaching mood. We don't want to go to church where someone opens the scriptures and says, this is the law. This is our authority. This is what we must do. No, we want to go to a church where we get to sit around in a powwow circle and just talk about what we like and what we feel and what we appreciate. It's exactly what was happening in Corinth. They did not like the Apostle Paul telling them, this is what God commands of you in church. 
What do you find in so many modern worship services? Well, you find the exercise of spiritual gifts in a way that does not exhort, that does not challenge, and does not confront the people of God with the authority of God as it is contained in His Word. The faithful, deep, and clear exposition of Scripture is oftentimes replaced with special musical performance and subjective times of testimony and all sorts of other trinkets and entertainments and films and videos that subvert the centrality of preaching, that subvert the the place of the Word of God at the very epicenter of what the church is and does. You know, a very interesting thing about the Protestant Reformation, if you've ever been inside a Catholic cathedral, especially as they were in the Middle Ages, you walked in and you would see the Eucharist table in the very center of the church and you would see the idols and you would see the statues and you would see the candles and then off to the side you would find maybe this little tiny lectern where a priest would give a 15 minute homily and when God uh, brought reformation to the church what you saw was now they would build their assemblies and they would build a big pulpit right in the center of the church as a symbol that the word of God is why we've come here today. The Word of God is is to lead us and to guide us, to direct us in all that we do in the church. I cannot help but think that there are many places today that if the Apostle Paul were to walk in on a Sunday morning, he would say to himself, this place is too Corinthian. It was pastor I've grown to greatly appreciate, David Silversides, who said this, quote, worship without content will produce a Christianity without content, and it will produce church members without content until there is no church left. If all you have in your worship service is a bunch of aimlessly unordered tongue speakers, there will be no edification. And when there is no edification, there is no spiritual growth. And when there is no spiritual growth, the health of the church suffers. Paul says... Love dictates that we use our spiritual gifts in a way that is understandable and in a way that is edifying. And that means we prioritize prophecy in a known language over tongues in an unknown language. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm off the hook here because I don't have the gift of prophecy. God hasn't called me to preach. No, but you have to make the decision on how you're going to use your spiritual gifts in a way that aids the role of preaching in the church. If God has given you the gift of prayer, you can utilize that gift to be a great bolster and encouragement to the preaching in the church. If God has gifted you very uniquely with musical talent and musical ability, you can use that in the church in such a way that either greatly helps and emphasizes preaching or in a way that greatly distracts and takes away from preaching. See? That's what he says. Follow after charity, desire spiritual gifts, and especially prophecy. Well, notice now the analogy in verses 6 through 8. Paul is, of course, a master illustrator. And I love what he says in verse 6. He says, now brethren. It's as if Paul is saying, come on, guys. Think about it. Just think it. Think it through. He says... If I come unto you speaking with tongues, 
What shall it profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation, or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine? Paul says, if, if I come to you, you Corinthians, and I speak to you in a foreign language that you don't understand, you, you won't profit from that, will you? If I write you an epistle in a language you can't read, you're not going to get much out of it, are you? Now, this raises an important question for us. And that question is this. Uh, did Paul have the gift of tongues? <laughs> well, according to verse 18, the answer is yes, he did have the gift of tongues. Because he says, I thank God that I spake in tongues more than all of you. But he abstained from exercising this gift among the Corinthians. Why did he abstain from exercising this gift among the Corinthians? Because Paul was a man who was motivated to use his spiritual gifts in love unto the edification of the church. And he knew even though he had this gift of tongues, it wasn't going to be profitable apart from interpretation. Paul knows that there is no edification without understanding and intelligibility and if there is no edification, then the motive of love is not satisfied. One must appreciate how Paul, time and time again in 1 Corinthians, uses himself as an example of one who abides by the principles he teaches. Paul does not ask the church to do something that he himself doesn't model for us. And he's not trying to rain on their tongue-speaking parade, so to speak. He's just simply laying down biblical principles for all Christians to follow when they come to worship God. Paul could have come to the church speaking in tongues. And knowing the Corinthians, this is the, this is the kicker, knowing the Corinthians, what would they have done if Paul would have come to their church speaking in tongues? They would have loved it. They would have lost their minds. They would have thought it was the greatest thing ever. But all for the wrong reasons. And so Paul's goal was not just to impress them and to entertain them. Paul's goal was to edify them. So he says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, it's not going to profit you anything. And then he gives this analogy in verse, verse 6. He says, or verse 7, he says, and even things without life-giving sound, so inanimate objects, and then he gives us some examples, whether pipe or harp, musical instruments. He says, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? The analogy is pretty simple, isn't it? Paul is using musical instruments to illustrate his point. Music only edifies when it produces a distinguishing sound. So when my wife plays the piano at our home, it is edifying to me because I am able to sit in my study and hear the music and I can identify the notes and it's especially edifying if I can identify the hymn that she's playing because then the words of the hymn start playing in my mind and it's edifying to me. But when John climbs up on the chair and starts haphazardly banging on the keys, well, it might be edifying, but not because of what he's doing to our piano. The sound he's making with that piano has no edifying qualities whatsoever, I can assure you. Not because he isn't cute and adorable when he's doing it and laughing like a maniac, banging on the piano keys, but it's not edifying because there's no intelligible distinction in the sound. 
And he goes on and he says, what about the trumpet? He says, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? And in our modern age, this soldier is not as appreciated as he once was, but do you realize that there was a time in which the bugle boy was one of the most important men on the battlefield? If the enemy was launching a surprise attack, they were, they were about to ambush, the bugle boy with his trumpet had the immensely important responsibility of mustering the troops to be able to defend themselves. And he had to play a sound that was precise and distinct. See, you don't want to be in a situation when the enemy is attacking and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, now is that bugle boy calling us to battle or is he just practicing twinkle twinkle little star? He needs to play with understanding so that we know what we're supposed to do. And Paul argues that this exact same principle applies to spiritual gifts in the church. Especially to gifts of a public ministerial nature. Tongues without an interpreter is like John banging on the piano. Mm -hmm. Tongues without an interpreter is like a bugle boy with a confused trumpet. We have to use our spiritual gifts with understanding unto edification. That's the analogy. Well, thirdly, let me show you the application. The application. In verse 9, Paul says this. He says, So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? Words easy to be understood here. Uh, means words in a language that everyone knows. That's what that means. While there's no virtue in using a lofty vocabulary, especially when it's done to impress, there's no virtue in that. There's also no virtue in limiting yourself to words with only two syllables in them. I, I hope that you at this church have learned a word or two that helps you to better understand and articulate the things of God. Because when you expand your Christian and theological vocabulary, you increase your edification. But, brothers and sisters, there's no edification in a message given entirely in a foreign language. It's not easy to be understood. He says, he says if you do that, you're just speaking into the air. You don't, by the way, you don't have to be speaking in a foreign language to be speaking into the air. Preaching that makes no sense... When the, when the preacher has given, uh, he's put in no time to actually prepare something of substance and of content. When, when he ha has no proper training, when he doesn't obey the principles of, of context and hermeneutics, and, and he just kind of puts together this hodgepodge sermon that he preaches to you that makes absolutely no sense, he might as well just be speaking into the air. He says in verse 10, there are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world and none of them is without signification. We've established that the, the gift of tongues is not the gift of ecstatic utterances, but it is the gift to speak in a known language that you yourself have not naturally learned. And here in verse 10, the Bible actually gives us a definition of a language. What is a language? Well, in order for a language to be a language, it must have what the King James calls signification. 
Language is a vehicle to communicate thoughts and ideas. If you are making babbling sounds that don't mean anything, you're not speaking a language. The word is signification. What is contained in that word? Well, the language must be significant. The words in that language must function as signs to communicate real and tangible ideas. And if the sounds spoken don't do that, well, then it isn't a language. But what Paul is saying here is that even if you're speaking a real language, if no one understands it, you might as well not be. He says, therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian. Now, a barbarian is not a caveman. A barbarian is simply an old English word that means foreigner. He says, if if I don't understand the meaning of the voice, I might as well just be a foreigner to you. He's not demeaning the tongue speaker by calling him a, a barbarian. In fact, the message may have tremendous content, but if it's given in a foreign language that no one understands, we'd look at the guy like a foreigner. But with clear, plain, straightforward verses like this in the Bible, doesn't it really make you wonder why some churches do the things they do? Whether it's the charismatic chaos that is so popular in our day, that's kind of the low-hanging fruit, isn't it? But I can't help but read this and think about the Latin mass that has kept people in bondage for centuries. I love what, what our confession says about the Word of God, that it must be translated into the vulgar language, the common language. And we must not only translate the Bible into the common language, but we must conduct our worship in the common language. All a Latin mass does is enable the so-called clergy to be able to have spiritual dominion over those poor, misbegotten souls. Our Christianity and our worship must be done with understanding and discernment. So the application of this analogy is this. Just like musical instruments must be played with order, so too must our spiritual gifts in the church be exercised with understanding if we are to receive edification. Well, fourthly and lastly in verse 12, I want you to see the admonition. The admonition. Paul says in verse 12, Even so ye... For as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. The Corinthians had no problem desiring spiritual gifts. They wanted spiritual gifts. Their problem was chasing after what they thought was glamorous and ostentatious, desiring spiritual gifts for the wrong reasons. Their deficiency lied in their lack of love for one another and the sin of pride. And so in verse 12, it's as if Paul is saying, if you guys were as concerned with edifying one another as you are with having some cool spiritual gift to show off, your problems would be solved. If your zeal for spiritual gifts would would equal your zeal for edifying one another, this church wouldn't be in this mess that it's in. So as you desire spiritual gifts... As you chase after spiritual gifts, make your first priority the edification of the church in love. And if if that's your attitude, if that's your desire, God will lead you the rest of the way. If you have this desire, I want to be loving to my brothers and sisters. I want to serve them. I want to edify them. I want to build them up in the faith. 
I want to be used of God to make them better Christians. If you have that attitude, God will guide you into the specific way, the specific avenue, the specific contribution that He would have you to make in His church. Well, how do we, though, nearly 2,000 years removed from the context of the first century church, rightly apply this passage to our worship today? Again, we don't have the same circumstances. We don't have uh, issues with unbridled and unrestrained tongue speakers, but neither do we have problems with eating meat sacrificed to idols, and wasn't there a whole lot there for us today? Because the principles apply. The principles are universal, though the circumstances may change. This passage, 1 Corinthians 14, forces us to ask the question, why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? Do you come to church to be entertained? Do you come to church to see something exciting? To, to have some ecstatic experience? Or do you come to church because you're desirous to hear the truth of the Word of God? If you come to church for the truth of the Word of God, two things will be true. Number one, you will place a high premium on order and understanding. You wouldn't take too kindly if I said, instead of preaching the Bible this morning, I have a fresh word from God in Swahili that I'd like to share from the, with the church. Because you don't know Swahili. And my message won't lead to your edification. You, you would probably say something to me like, Pastor, I didn't come to church this morning to hear you babble in what you think is Swahili. I came to church this morning to hear the word of God preached unto my edification. So do that. If you come to church for the truth of the word of God, you will orient your service around the clear, bold proclamation of the word. You won't stand for the preaching of the word to be subverted by ecstatic and unintelligible tongues or wild and unorderly musical performances, or anything else that doesn't lead to the edification of the church in love. So that'll be true of you. If you come to church for the Word of God, you're going to place a high premium on order and understanding. Secondly, if you are satisfied and content with the Word of God, you will never be bored in church. God has given an infinite supply of edification in His Bible. We will never exhaust the depths of this book. I'm not going to, but I could get to the end of 1 Corinthians, start back over in chapter 1, and we'd, we'd all just learn new things. Somebody should have said, Amen, I'm glad you're not going to do that. <laughs> if church is boring, or if a sermon is boring, it might be my fault, it might be your fault, but it's never God's fault. But there's another reason why you should come to church. Not just because you are desirous to hear the truth of the Word of God, but also because you desire to edify others. What are you going to do to be a blessing to others. I think I've used this illustration before, but you know, when we have our 
monthly church fellowships, we talk about what we're going to bring. And everybody talks about, I'm going to make this, and I'm going to make that, and this is the theme, and okay, if you're going to make that, then I'll make this, because what I'm going to make will complement what you're going to make. And we go out, and we buy the ingredients, and we prepare the meal, and we put a lot of thought into it, so that when we have that fellowship, we have a good meal. Well, and as much as you prepare to stir up some ingredients to make a good meal, I would exhort you to prepare to stir up one another unto good works. To be thinking through what you're going to do, what you're going to say, how you're going to serve. To be thinking through on Sunday morning, you know, brother so-and-so mentioned on Wednesday that, that he needed to have some yard work done at his house and the leaves are coming down and he, he broke his rake and hey, I have a rake, I'll, I'll put it in the truck this morning and give it to him and be able to be a blessing to him today. To be thinking through things like that. To be thinking through how you can can be an encouragement. How, how, how are you going to speak a word in season? Brother so-and-so mentioned Wednesday night that he's, he's going through some trouble. And I was reading my Bible the other day and I came across a verse that made me think of him and what he's going through. And today when I get to church and when I see him, I'm going to shake his hand and I'm going to say, Brother, I'd like to share with you something from the Word of God. If the only edification that takes place in the church happens in the pulpit, then we are an unhealthy church. We need to be edifying one another. If God showed you something really wonderful in your devotions on Thursday morning and it was a blessing to your, to your soul, share it with somebody. Don't be stingy with the good things of God. Share it with somebody. We come to church and... We often waste all of our time talking about the same worldly things that we talk about with our lost co-workers all week at the office. But, but this is our opportunity as the people of God to speak about the things of God and to encourage one another in spiritual things and to relate to one another on a level that we can't relate to anybody else. It's our opportunity to use our spiritual gifts for the true reason God gave them to us. The world does not care about what spiritual gifts I have. They just simply don't. In fact, if you have the gift of preaching, most of the time the world actually doesn't like that at all. <laughs> but in the church, you have an, a body, a family, in which your gifts are appreciated. Your gifts are valued. Use them. Use them to be a blessing. More applications could be made from these principles. But I trust that you get the, the main idea of this passage. Follow the bookends of this text. We started in verse 1. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. And then verse 12. Even so, ye for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Follow after love. Desire spiritual gifts. And as much as you desire those spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edification of the church. May God bless us and help us and allow us to be blessings one to another with the gifts that he's given us. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name for your immense blessings that you pour out upon us richly. Lord, we thank you for the spiritual gifts that you've given to this church. And we ask that, Lord, you would continue to give gifts, give gifted members and gifted 
brothers, gifted sisters who are able to all make their unique contribution to make this church the beautiful family that it is by your grace. We love you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. May Christ be glorified. Amen. Amen. Amen.